The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Imagine with me uh, that your great, 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 great grandparents uh, owned like a, a cattle farm or some huge farm of, say, like a thousand acres. And this has been something that they had built. This has been something that they had sort of worked really, really hard and poured their hearts into. Um, And one day, this sort of gets passed down the line and it's your turn. And they they give you this elaborate, you know, let's say 200 acre property. You've got hundreds of cattle and sheep and you've got a mansion, um, you know, with 20 bedrooms and five bathrooms. And you've got the you've sort of got the flower gardens. You've got the fields. You've got the orchids. You've got all the stuff. And they come and they give it to you and they say, this is yours for free. You don't have to do anything to earn it. It's freely given. We have done the work. We have done the hard yards. And now we're going to freely give you this gift. But I need you to be aware that there are threats to maintaining this beautiful 200-acre property with all all the farms. You need to be aware of the seasonal climate change Uh, You need to be aware of aerial threats. You need to be aware of below-the-ground threats. You need to be aware of windy seasons, fire seasons, storm seasons, flood seasons. You need, this is yours for free. You don't do anything to earn it, but you are going to have to take some effort to enjoy it. This is essentially what the Christian life is. If you read the book of Ephesians, this guy, this is Apostle Paul, has been following Jesus for a number of years and he's writing to this church in Ephesus and he starts off the letter telling them all that is theirs because of God. Here is God, that He is gracious and merciful and kind and He has loved you and forgiven you and He's given you His Spirit and He's given you the family. And He even moves on further sort of from chapter 3 all the way to sort of this part in chapter 6, sort of outlining the, the benefits and the beauty of what you can have in your faith, that it can bring unity between races and ethnicities coming together as one people. It can take families that are divided and bring them together. We can have children who come back in a right relationship with their parents. It can have spouses that come back in a right relationship. And then at the end of this, he starts off this last section saying, but, or finally, in light of all that I've said to you, all the benefits, all the good things that are freely yours, you must know this. You need to be aware of the climate. You need to be aware of the natural surroundings and habitats that all that is freely given to you without earning the benefits of that will take effort. So he says, finally, in light of all this, don't forget this last point. The reality of God in all of his wisdom, lavishing his love on you before the foundation of the world. He has chosen you. He has forgiven you. He has saved you. He has filled you with his spirit. And now he wants you to be prepared that there is a battle. And so three things I think we have. I'm going to walk through just the first couple of verses. And then over the next six weeks past, we're going to go through each of these specific bits of armor. I'm not going to be wearing those pieces of armor every week. Apologies. But three things I want to give you quickly. Today, number one, what Paul wants us to realize is he wants us to recognize that we are in a fight, right? That there is a fight, there is a spiritual battle. Now, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors in his book, uh, Screw Tape Letters, 
I read this to my son a couple of years ago. We used to read C.S. Lewis every Monday night. And so we'd read through uh, C.S. Lewis's works. They're really, really cool. But in the beginning of his introduction to this book, Screwtape Letters, really interesting book. It's basically, um, it's, it's kind of role play with the enemy and how he's going to try and sort of get Christians and sort of cool their hearts. And it's very, very fascinating read as C.S. Lewis always is. But he helps, I think, kind of create these two extremes or these two sort of sides of an off-ramp of a road that he says we don't want to get to when it comes to spiritual warfare. Number one is what he calls superstition. This is this obsessive overbelief. That is that everything is a spiritual attack. Every time you're sick, it's a devil. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're eating Maccas every day, drinking Coke every day. Uh, every time you're under financial pressure, it must be the devil. It's not that you are poorly stewarding the finances and resources that is given you. Every time you have relational issues, it's the devil. The devil gets blamed for everything. It's this superstitious, obsessive over-belief. Everything is a generational curse. Everything needs to be cut off from your past. And in this particular view, the devil is scarily powerful and we are always in fear of him. Now, this view leads to an unhealthy fear and anxiety, and it often leads to a lack of actually equipping us on how we fight the enemy. Now, I grew up in a church culture like this, where we spent hours upon hours upon hours praying against the enemy, pulling down strongholds, etc., etc. And none of those things are necessarily bad. But what we didn't get with that is like, let us work on what the truth is about God, not just the enemy. How do we focus? Because the Bible says not just resist the enemy, it says submit to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee. So what we didn't in the culture that I grew up in, we didn't get the other side of the coin, which is fill your mind with the truth of the word of God. Take responsibility for your spiritual walk. But then C.S. Lewis also says that there is a other flip side. There is this substition. This is a dismissive underbelief. Now, because of my background, I think I overswung to here at one point, where it's almost like there is no devil. There is no demonic realm. Just doesn't exist. Everything that's bad in my life is either by bad choices or just bad luck. And there's no concept of it could be the enemy actually attacking me and coming after me. It's, it's the idea that it's just fairy tale stuff. And this view leads to an unhealthy ignorance or pride and self reliance because we don't need to lean into God, we don't need to resist the enemy. He doesn't exist. And so it's not that we are ill-equipped to have our weapons ready for battle. It's just that we don't realize we actually need to take them up. And so what he tries to do in his book is sort of say, hey, we, we need to avoid both of these extremes. And so the Bible would say the devil is real. Spiritual powers are real. They exist and they hate your guts. Their whole existence is to cause you to not believe in God. And if you do believe in God, their whole emphasis is now to make you an ineffective, ill-equipped Christian who lives out their faith. But we don't see them in light of just them. We see them in light of God, who is above them, more powerful than them, and is subject to his name, and we are a part of his team. So we recognize they're there, we recognize they're real, but we do not live in fear of them because we serve an almighty God who he has the last word. Amen? 
So this is what Paul says. He wants to get in our minds, listen, it's, it's a real battle. So verse 11, it says, Put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, we do not, do not wrestle against the flesh, but we wrestle against the rulers and the authorities. And multiple times he's saying against, 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 against. And then verse 13, therefore take up the whole arm of God that you may be able to withstand. You and I are in a fight. Even if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, you're in a fight. Because the enemy does not want you to believe that God loves you. That God sent his son to die for you. And if you are a Christian, he doesn't want you to enjoy that. J.C. Ryle makes this really interesting point that there are two ways to know genuine Christianity. There's obviously more than two, but he kind of goes, one is the fact that a genuine, true Christian experiences genuine and true peace. That when you become a Christian, you now have peace with God. He has forgiven you as Shane prayed. He has forgiven us of our past, present and future sins. And we experience this joy of knowing that we are right with God. It is a beautiful thing to experience, to not have to fear the eternal God, but to know that you are right with Him is a great feeling. It's awesome. Not only that, but you have peace in your everyday ordinary life that when you go through times of stress and anxiety and worry, that this very God comes and is present with you and He helps you and He gives you inner peace. But J.C. Ryle says, but also another way you can tell a genuine Christian is that there's a real fight. That genuine Christians actually are engaged in warfare. That they feel a sense of temptation that they wish to resist. They feel a sense of wanting to go one way, but they are trying to push and move the other way. So he says this, he wrote this nearly 100 years ago. He says this, he says, let me talk to you about true Christianity. There's a vast quantity of religion current in the world that is not true, genuine Christianity. I love some of the old language. It pastors muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. That's a cool line. I like that. It is not the real thing which was called Christianity 1800 years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with Christian marriage services. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die, but you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife, of exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Let us consider these propositions. The saddest symptom many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict or fight. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go through scanty round of formal religious services once or even twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, its watchings and strugglings, its agonies and anxieties, its battles and contests, all of this they appear to know nothing of all. And then he exhorts, he says, do you find in your heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Are you conscious of two principles within you contending for the mastery? Do you feel anything of war in your inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers and are real Christians can be known 
as much by their inward warfare as they can their inward peace. There's a pastor I've spoken to, to a few of you. I won't point you out, but there's been a number of you and, and many outside of, the, of this particular church who have come to me with their wrestle with sin. And they are, they're, they're almost hurt inside and they're saying, I hate my sin. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to do this. And they even get to the point like, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. And I flip it and go, that's evidence that you are. I'm not worried about the person who's like, I don't want to be this man or be this woman. I don't want to keep doing this. I'm not worried about that person. I'm worried about the person who doesn't realize that they're living in it. That they don't have any desire to change. That's the one. That's the person who I'm like, listen, it seems to be genuine Christians are filled with peace and experience God's peace. But they also recognize that they are on a mission and the enemy wants to stop them. So if you are here and you are not a Christian and you have this sense of like, but I kind of am interested, but I feel like something's blocking me. It's possible that that is the enemy trying to blind you and keep you away from God. Come, let us know so that we can walk with you and fight with you so that you can cross the line and follow our great Jesus. Or maybe you are here and you are a Christian and you are fighting your sin and you're like, I want to be a better man. I want to be a better woman. I want to be a better follower of Jesus. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I want to be more peaceful. I want to be more loving. If you have that in your heart, keep fighting because that is an encouragement to you because that shows that you have the Spirit of God living within you. So number one is recognize you're in a fight. Number two is understand the fight. You can't win a fight if you don't know you're in one. And you're not going to have as good of odds of winning a fight if you don't know your opponent, if you don't know who it is you are fighting. So in order to win a war, we must be prepared for the enemy. Who is our enemy? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What are their preferred methods of attack? So what I want to do for most of our time is just explore this concept of spiritual warfare, kind of give you a bit of an overview and then over the next six weeks after this, we're going to dig down a little bit more into these. But I want to explore two, two things really. Is What is spiritual warfare? What does that really look like? And specifically, what are strongholds? And if we can understand that, we'll understand what these pieces of armor and these weapons that we're given to fight them. So what is spiritual warfare? Well, it's this ongoing conflict this spiritual conflict against humanity. And it's kind of coming from three vantage points. I think the Bible, uh, Paul doesn't say it here specifically, so I'm going to go through these quickly, and then we're going to focus on the devil, who he does uh, mention. But I think there are three elements of it. There's the world, there's the flesh, and then there's the devil and his minions. And I always like that because I view them as the little minions. So, what are these particular vantage points or enemies? The world is this idea of cultural values, this world view or the world system. It's kind of that invisible system of ideas and thoughts. Uh, all of us experience this uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, some verses will say, you, you, basically, if you love the world, you can't love God. Okay? What he's not saying is you can't love people because that would go against the rest of the Bible. You can't be friends with the world. It's like, well, you can't, if, unless you're you know, like in our crew, we kind of can't be friends, sorry. No, 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 it's not what it's saying. When it's talking about the world in that context, it's talking about its system. You can't love the world, the culture, its ideas, its thoughts, the way it views things, and love God, because those two things are at enmity with one another. They're different worldviews. That's the world. 
That's the culture. Then there's the flesh. This is the idea of this immaterial part of you that kind of wrestles. If you're a Christian at all, even if you're not a Christian, you can kind of understand this idea of having a conscience, which is like, ah, oh, I want to do this, but I shouldn't do this. When you're a Christian, there's this idea of the flesh. It still has these desires for things that aren't godly, that aren't good. And so you have this internal wrestle against, well, I know I should do this, but I want to do this. I want to watch that. I you know, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's this battle. And then he gets to this idea of Satan and the devil. Uh, you see this explicitly in the book of Ephesians. So he doesn't say it here, but if you read Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, this will come up on the screen. You'll notice all three. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked following the course of the world. You were following the system, just taking on the cultural worldview and accepting it, believing it, going with it. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. This is kind of the idea of Satan, the devil. And now at work in the sons of decent, uh, disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's that sinful nature, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then I love the very next line, but God. And it tells us all that God has done for us in light of these three kind of elements that we are wrestling against. And so what I want to look at is just these three things, these three elements that I think Paul tells us here about the devil. And these are important for us to, to recognize and be instructed by. He, he doesn't give an exhaustive list. He doesn't tell us where the devil comes from, doesn't tell us the history. But he does say this. He tells us that this spiritual force is powerful. So verse 12 says, against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces. We don't know whether Paul's trying to give a hierarchy of these particular beings. We don't really know. But what we do know is he's trying to say, hey, listen, they're there, they exist, and they have influence. They have power. Um, they can do things. Two, that they're evil. These cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. Power itself is neutral. Our world currently thinks all power is bad. That's untrue. Power is just power. How it is used determines whether it is good or bad. God is all-powerful and uses his power for good. Power in and of itself is not a bad thing. How power is used, how it is exercised, determines whether it is good or not. And notice that their natural habitat is darkness. Their intent is nothing but evil. They have no moral principles, no code of honor. And then lastly... Crafty. Notice it says that we are to fight against the schemes of the devil. If, if you've been in church for a little while, kind of know the Christian story a little bit, this, this word sort of schemes here, in, this is written in Greek. In Hebrew, it's the same word for crafty, which is described about the serpent who's in the garden. It says this in Genesis 3.1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty, scheming, cunning, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And how did this serpent work against Eve in the beginning? He sowed seeds of doubt in questions. Did God really say? You sure you can trust God? And just leaves, leaves it hanging. Which kind of highlights often how he works. The enemy... 
He's crafty. He's cunning. He has schemes. He uses his weapons of deception and temptation and accusation to draw us away from God. Another way that Paul writes this is in 2 Corinthians. He says this. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Same idea, right? But then he goes on, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are strongholds? He then goes on and says, we destroy these strongholds, these arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So can the enemy directly strike someone and make you sick? Yes, we see that in the Bible. We see stories in the Bible where the enemy is directly coming against people's businesses and occupations and finances, coming against their family and doing on, like sort of from the front coming at you. But most often that's not how he works. Most often he's coming from the sides, he's hidden in the darkness and he's dropping lies in your mind. He's dropping thoughts and arguments and lofty ideas about God and about you in the back of your head. This is most often how the enemy works. Even when he is attacking and trying to make someone sick or trying to get at your business or trying to get your family, it's so that you'll believe a lie ultimately about God anyway. It's not, he doesn't want you to be sick for the sake of making you sick. He wants you to make you sick so you think that God is against you. He wants to bring suffering and struggle against you so you think and believe that God is not for you. God is not with you. I think particularly in the West, the way he ultimately works is he just makes us comfortable. And it allows us to enjoy the goodness of the world without contending. I love how John Bunyan wrote, speaking of the devil, he's kind of taking on the form of the devil. He says, I shall, too, I shall be too hard for you. I will cool you insensibly, just by degrees, by little and little. What care I, saith he? Though I'd be seven years chilling your heart, <laughs> if I can do it at last. Continually rocking with a lull, a child asleep, I will ply it close, but I'll have my end accomplished. Though you be burning at present, yet if I can pull you from this fire, I shall have you cold before it be too long. That is often how the enemy works, particularly in our context, I believe. He makes us passive, apathetic. Is this your story? That COVID hits, you feel under pressure, maybe you even lose your job and you pray. All of a sudden you're on your knees and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying. And then some funding comes through from the government and you realise we're actually going to be okay. And things start to go back to some sort of normal and all of a sudden you get up off your knees and you start just walking on your feet again. This is my story. When times get hard, God, God help, God help. When things are going easy, who's God? I'm God. I have it all together. I can do this. I can raise the children. As soon as the children become difficult, God, I need your help. It's okay, God. I have it all together now. Be gone from me. Health issues. God, I need healing. I need restoration. 
Good health. My wife will tell me, I've not had that for a long time, but don't, don't be fooled by her lies. I am in good health. Most of you don't get that. That's fine. So should we pray against the enemy? Should we pray against sickness? 100% we should. When someone is sick, we should pray. Ask God for healing and miraculous healing. When someone feels oppression from the enemy, or they feel a sense of spiritual attack, should we pray? 100% we should pray. We often say here at church at LCC, we are going to pray like crazy and we're going to trust completely. We're not praying from a place of fear, but from a place of trust. So yes, we should Absolutely pray and pray often. In fact, the end of this passage is going to tell us to pray all the time. Just constantly be praying. This is one of the things as a church family between us and LCC Calanda that we've kind of identified as being a marker of our church. We, we, we want to grow. So we have these, these sort of four pillars that we would say, these four values of being gospel-centered, biblically-based, community-focused, and missionally driven. The fifth one is going to be prayerfully dependent. Because we need to be on fire Christians who pray and are on their knees, not when things are going bad, but all the time because we recognize we need God always. So this is something that because of my own disposition and my own sort of overswing, I think we lack as a church. And so that is something that I'm trying to repent of. I'm trying to model better in my own life. And so he said there that we are to fight these strongholds. What are these strongholds? Well, a stronghold is this secure, fortified place dominated by an enemy. It's this, this fortified, deeply rooted thought pattern in the mind of someone. That's what a stronghold is. And often we think of strongholds simply as these demonic forces somewhere out there. But what Paul says is, no, no, strongholds are something that's actually in here. This is how the enemy gets in. He gets into the way you think and primarily how you think about God and how you think about yourself. And we're going to look at a number of these things as we go through this series. Eric Mason puts it this way. He says, A stronghold is a mindset, a value system, or thought process that hinders you from coming to or growing in Christ. David Wilkinson says, Most of us think of strongholds as bondages such as sexual trespasses or drug addictions or alcoholism. In other words, outward sins we put at the top of our worst sin list. But Paul is referring to something worse than the measuring of sins. A stronghold is an accusation planted firmly in your mind. And Satan uses these to establish strongholds in your life by implanting into your mind lies and falsehoods, especially regarding the character and nature of God. Has anyone here ever seen Hoarders? Okay, a few of you. Okay, it's a, it's a fascinating show. Hoarders is essentially a camera crew who basically go into people's homes of people who have been, you know, sort of given to them by, by family members or whatever. And these people are hoarders. So their house is filled with stuff. And what's interesting about the show Hoarders is not just these people have like 1,000 cats. Okay, now I'm, 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 I'm not against cats. Okay, maybe I am against cats, but that's a different story. Okay, I've got people in the room on this side who I've got to still love. Okay, okay. Um, or they've just got, like, you go into the house and it's just, you can't even get in the house. The, the, the interesting thing about hoarders is not just that their homes are filled, it's that they don't even see it anymore. And every time you see these people go in, the houses smell real bad. The, the actual state of the home is in disarray. It's unhygienic. It's unhealthy. And it's, you sit there and you go, wow, how do you get like that? And it's like, well, just a little bit 
time after time after time after time after time. And five years later, you're sitting in something that you're not even aware of. That's the picture of a stronghold. It's his thought, it's his thought, it's his thought, it's his thought. God doesn't love me, God doesn't love me, God doesn't love me, God doesn't love me. And all of a sudden you're over here and go, God doesn't love me. God can't forgive me, God can't forgive me, God can't forgive me, God can't forgive me. God can't forgive me. God's not good, God's not good, God's not good, God's not good. God's not good. Walking with Jesus isn't the best way. Walking with Jesus over here is good. This looks better. This is gold. This is lovely. Following Jesus, no, I don't want to do it. It's time after time after time. This is what a stronghold will do to you. It'll have you functioning and acting like a place of great sinfulness, of great mess, of great dysfunction is a normal place to be. But here's the good news. Number three, Paul says you can be equipped for this fight. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Bad news. Our deceiving, accusing and tempting enemy wants to plant falsehoods into our minds. He wants to distract us. He wants us disillusioned. He wants us disengaged and he wants us discouraged. We're seeing this in waves in the Western church of people who are becoming disenfranchised with church and they're disengaging and their faith is being deconstructed. Exactly what the enemy wants. But here's the good news. While our enemy is real, we are aware of his tactics. Paul reiterates the charge to stand firm, to live brave in the face of spiritual enemy because God has not left us defenseless. We are not without hope. We have armour to protect us. We must put it on. We have weapons to fight with. We must take them up. And notice what he says there in verse 10. It's not Christian, do better, be stronger. That's not what he says. He doesn't say be stronger. He says be strengthened. In the power of whose might? His might. Put on your armour. No, he doesn't say that. He says, put on the armour of God. Right? So this is the idea that the weapons in which we fight with, the, 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 sort of the, the armour that we put on even isn't ours. It's not even ours. It's God. So this is not a fight that we do alone. This is a fight that God actually strengthens us. He doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, fight in your own strength. He says, no, no, no. Here's how you win. Recognise you don't have what it takes to win but you're on the winning team. Stick with Jesus. Stick close to Jesus and take his strength. The strength that rose from the dead. Same power that's given to God. Jesus says, I'm going to give to you. Now get up and fight. God is not saying be stronger. He's saying be strengthened by what? By the strength of his might by the strength of all strengths, by the might of all might, be strengthened. How are we strengthened? Well, we're going to get into that in the next six weeks, but we'll finish with this as the band come up. What you'll notice is that we are given all of this weaponry, all of this armor. And all of these six things are related to truths about God. And I want to encourage you that some of us 
we're on that under. We're substitious. We're, we're not realizing that the enemy is just trying to put us to sleep. And some of us over here, maybe we're given too much credit and we're focusing too much on it's all the devil and we're not actually focused on who we're with, that we're with Christ and who is he and what has he done and what is the truth and filling our minds with that. And together as a church family, we're going we're gonna to spend the next six weeks actually spending time praying in our next six Sundays. So we're going to invite times for people to come up the front. And this is a little bit unusual for us. We're a little bit more on the conservative side, but we're going to pray for people. And we're going to believe that some people who are under spiritual attack are going to get set free. And we're going to pray together and we're going to fight for that. For some of us, we're going to be sick and we're going to pray against it. And some of us may get healed. We're going to invite God for the next six weeks to come. And we want to explore walking closer with Jesus to see what he does and the victory he can give us in our lives. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are disheartened. Some of us are hurting. And God, I believe, is going to do incredible things in our lives. And I want to invite you to come and let's war together against this enemy. Let's live in the victory of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 